welcome to the JNMP podcast. In this month's edition, we'll be discussing alternative treatments of multiple sclerosis, as well as the role of nodes and paranodes in neuropathies. First up, the patient's choice, complementary and alternative treatments of MS with Professor Bruce Taylor from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research, the University of Tasmania. So Bruce, welcome back to the JNMP podcast. Thank you. Your JNMP review looks at alternative and complementary therapies in MS, a review of the evidence from 2001 to 2016. So Bruce, why do people with MS seek out complementary therapies? Well, because MS is such a complicated disease, it has a, uh, it presents with a lot of symptoms and a lot of uh, issues which are not necessarily well addressed um, by the current disease-modifying therapies and also to a certain extent people um, with MS and their symptoms are difficult, uh, their symptoms are difficult to treat with conventional medications and people therefore are continually seeking other means to be able to treat them. And there's also, uh, because of the nature of MS and its um, influence on people's lives, people always want to try and, or generally want to try and and improve their lifestyle, improve their, the things they do that may help and influence the, um, their MS and in potentially reduce its impact on their lives. And therefore, they're always looking for something which is um, that they can you do, that they can do themselves, that they can utilise, that, that may actually significantly improve their, their lives. And to a certain extent, um, because MS is actually relatively uncommon, even though it, it's a prevalent disease for neurologists, it's not um, necessarily well understood by the community and by other health professionals who may, particularly um, primary care at the primary care level, where they don't uh, actually see many people with MS and do not realise the complexity of the disorder. And therefore, sometimes pe- uh, people with MS feel that their symptoms are not taken seriously and therefore try and take things into their own hands. Focusing on the complementary and alternative therapies with the strongest evidence, as outlined in your review, um, in particular cannabis, physical activity and cognitive behavioural therapy, which your review cites have the strongest evidence base, what did your review demonstrate in terms of the efficacy and the associated risk? Well, it, it really revealed that there was very little risk to these therapies. But what it did reveal was that these um Therapy, you know, you, if you if you Google these therapies and um, MS, you'll find that there's lots of claims that these these make a substantial and proven benefit to people with MS. Whereas, when in the actual review, when you look at uh, well done studies, the effect sizes that they were generated, particularly for things like cannabis and cannabis um, extracts, would reveal that they only change if you do a placebo controlled trial. Those who got the um, the drug or the therapy were only about thirty percent better off than those who did not. It wasn't a profound effect in the, mo- the majority of people, and also it revealed that physical activity is very very hard to study. It almost certainly has an effect on almost anyone who goes and does a physical activity um, intervention. You know, going to the gym or changing your lifestyle in that respect does improve your quality of life, but it is it's not sustained. And also, there's no evidence that it actually affects the underlying course of MS, but it does improve people's quality of life. And for cognitive behavioural therapy, that is very interesting because that is an area of significant interest in, as a method of reducing fatigue in people with MS. And the studies to date point towards it having a significant effect here, but to say that it is proven as a therapy is not quite there yet. And that's what we found really striking was that in all of these things, there was 
well done studies, but they but you couldn't compare or add the studies together because the people who did them, the, the researchers did them, although they did a very good study, did not use the same outcome measures. They did not use the same methodologies, and therefore we couldn't combine studies together to give a, get a pooled effect, which is what we like to see, where studies one study validates another. And so there's a lot of work to be done there. The very strong point is that these three things do help people with MS, and we think that it's really important that these are further research. But at this stage, to say that they have a significant effect is hard, and to say that they're proven as treatments is also very hard. And Bruce, finally, how do you propose research has moved forward? Well, it's really important, I think, that researchers, uh, that within the MS community, the researchers establish um, frameworks for how they're going to study these things. Um, it's very hard to do a large enough study in, because, uh, to be honest with you, a drug, a drug companies have funded the largest studies of these for the cannabinoids, but most of these other treatments are not going to be of um, you know, commercial interest to anyone. Therefore, they're going to be done and funded by MS societies or by people with an interest. And therefore, having an established set of guidelines on how these studies should be done, how you're going to measure outcomes, how you're going to blind people so they don't know where which group they're in, um, is really very important, and we would we strongly advocate that within the MS community and the MS research community that working groups be established to say, for instance, look at physical activity, diet, cannabis, um, and cognitive behavioural therapy to actually devise studies which uh, will have a very good chance of proving whether or not they are successful, um, rather than putting people with MS through pointless exercises um, or pointless trials which are not going to prove anything. If we were as a group able to establish a framework that allows these studies to be done really well and improve these points once and all, it would be really important for people to be MS. Bruce, thank you so much for your time today and for joining me on the JNMT podcast. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Next up, the editor's choice, nodes, paranodes and neuropathies. Dr. Simon Rinaldi from the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom has joined me over Skype. Simon, welcome to the JNMP podcast. Thanks for having me. So why are specialised regions of the peripheral nerve, such as the node and the paranode, in the spotlight? Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the, the node is a characteristic feature of, of myelinated axons, which is, has long intrigued people who have studied peripheral nerves. and. And one reason really is that the nodal region has a, a fascinating and, and intricate structure. And this really reflects its, its critical physiological importance to saltatory conduction. Um, the nodes of Ramvier themselves are found between each pair of, of myelinated internodes and are the sites at which the voltage-gated sodium channels responsible for generation and indeed regeneration of the action potential cluster together. Um, furthermore, this, this region is only covered by a thin Schwann-cell microvilli. And it's therefore much more exposed to the extracellular fluid, which is like to make it a more accessible target for autoantibodies and perhaps of increased importance to inflammatory autoimmune neuropathies. The nodes are flanked by pairs of, of paranoids and juxtaparanoids, and each of these domains have their own um, distinct molecular and functional identity, um, formed really by a series of complex interactions between the underlying axon and the myelinating Schwann cell overlying. In, in, in recent years, really, a number of intersecting observations have, have further focused interest um, on these regions, particularly in the field of the inflammatory neuropathies. And, and the first of these was really some of the, the clinical and electrophysiological aspects of, of certain inflammatory neuropathies. Um, the, the early indication that the node might be an important site of, of pathology in these conditions was really inferred from electrophysiological studies. 
um, and came from the recognition um, that rapidly reversible conduction block without temporal dispersion couldn't be readily explained by demyelination or remyelination. I, I'll explain a little bit about really about what that means. So in, in conduction block, what you get is a reduction in the compound muscle action potential amplitude on proximal as opposed to distal stimulation of a peripheral nerve. And what that means is that in the intermediate segment of the nerve between the two sites of, of stimulation, some of the action potential impulses are failing to pass along, along the axon, even though the axon remains intact. And historically, that was felt to represent a, a segment of, of, of demyelination of the peripheral nerve, which, along which the action potential regeneration would fail and lead to conduction block. But what was apparent was that in some patients, the electrophysiological parameters really rapidly reversed and mirroring their rapid clinical improvement. And this tempo of improvement couldn't be explained by demyelination, remyelination, and had to be some sort of functional block of conduction. And the obvious site where that might occur was, was at the node itself. This idea was really then reinforced by, by some immunological observations, um, particularly the fact that this pattern of rapidly reversible conduction blocks seem to associate particularly with, with anti-ganglicide antibodies and notably those against the, the A-series ganglicides, GM1 and GD1A. Um, and furthermore, um, these antibodies were found to target nodal regions in various experimental paradigms. And really, the, the next um, set of observations which really further heightened interest in this area um, were those of, of Jerome DeVoe and colleagues back in 2012, who showed that in around 30 to 40 percent of, of um, acute inflammatory neuropathy patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, and indeed those with chronic inflammatory neuropathies such as, as CIDP, the, the nodal region was targeted by antibodies in the serum of patients in around 30 to 40 percent of cases. Um, and it's really that observation and the subsequent identification of the, of the specific targets of those antibodies which has really heightened interest in this area. And, and sort of furthering on from that, and thinking of our understanding of the nodal regions, um, how has our understanding of their role in the pathogenesis of the peripheral neuropathies grown in recent years? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is that, that our, our knowledge and understanding of, of the molecular interactions and functional specializations themselves of each, each, each domain has, has, has really um, expanded over recent years. So we know that, that the node, that the Schwann cell molecule gliomedian interacts with axonal neuroflacin 186, one of the neuroflacin isoforms, this recruits anchorin G, and then other um, adapter proteins mediate binding of the voltage-gated sodium channels to the, to the nodal cytoskeletal, pro, cytoskeletal protein, um, beta-4 spectrum. And this is responsible really for the clustering of, of the voltage-gated sodium channels at the node, and therefore necessary to allow normal cell tertiary conduction. At the paranode, we know that, that the neurofascinase form 155 is present on non-compact myelin loops and interacts with heterodimers of, of contactin 1 and Casper on the axolemma, and this forms septate-like junctions. So these act as a, as a fence to exclude juxtaparanodal voltage-gated potassium channels from invading the node and interfering with action potential generation and onward conduction. And then at the juxtaparanode, it's appreciated that a complex consisting of axonal Casper 2 and contactin 2, um, both on the axonal and glial side, performs a similar role to, to the neurofascin 186 glyamidin complex at the, the node, um, linking voltage-gated um, potassium channels in this instance to the axonal spectra, uh, spectrum cytoskeleton. Um, and this, again, is important for repolarization uh, of the action potential. So, we know more now about the, the, the physiology and, and microanatomy and molecular specialization of, of the regions. And alongside this, we've also developed an increasing understanding of, of the pathological processes which can be at play at the nodal region. Um, 
some work um, by Rona McGonagall and, and Hugh Willison's group in, in Glasgow some years ago demonstrated how antibody-mediated pathology at um, the distal nodes of Ranvier in particular could cause a functional um, conduction block, really mirroring the, the clinical and electrophysiological observations. Um, and what was shown in this study was that the, the distal nodes of Ranvier in particular were sensitive um, to GD1A antibody-mediated attack. Furthermore, that antibody recruited the complement cascade and resulted in MAC pore insertion into the membrane. So this is the membrane attack complex, the final, um, the end process really of, of activation of the complement system. What the MAC pore does is, is essentially insert uh, non-specific ion channel into the uh, axolemma. And in itself, that causes the, the axolemma to become leaky. And so you can therefore generate essentially a conduction block. Now, if that process doesn't go on to activate calpin and caspase as the axon stays intact, so you have a situation mirrored um, experimentally in which you can generate uh, functional conduction block and recovery. The next observation really was one that highlighted why the nodes themselves might be more sensitive to antibody-mediated attack than other regions of the peripheral nerve. And that was the fact that antibodies are kind of are rapidly internalized at other sites, such as the neuromuscular junction, whereas at the node of Ranvier, this doesn't occur so readily. So the antibodies hang around um, and are therefore more able to activate complement and lead to injury at these sites. But really, as I, as I hinted at in, in, in answer to the previous question, that the key development in recent years has been the identification of antibodies directed against specific nodal and paranodal proteins, particularly in the chronic inflammatory neuropathies. And these are antibodies which um, target um, proteins such as neuroisoforms 155, 141.86, contactin 1, and CASPA. Interestingly, we appreciate that these are largely, although not exclusively, of the non-complement-fixing IgG4 subclass. And for the neurofascin 155 and contactin 1 antibodies, these have been shown to block functionally paranodal axoglial interactions and therefore lead to disruption of the paranodal architecture and, again, a functional disturbance of conduction across the node. There's also now an, an intriguing association between these and other IgG4-mediated disorders and, and certain HLA alleles, which seems likely to have something to tell us about the mechanisms by which certain individuals are prone to develop these, these chronic autoimmune disorders. And Simon, what about the clinical implications of these developments that you've just described? Yeah, so I think the, the prime clinical um, implication really is that we now have cell-based assays which can detect these disease-specific antibodies which target nodal and paranodal proteins. And these, are, these assays are increasingly available, including via our, our own lab in, in Oxford. And detection of these antibodies, firstly, can, can aid in the recognition of, of treatable autoimmune disorders, which may have atypical presentations and look unlike typical um, CIDP, for example, and in which the nerve conduction studies might not show a, a classical demyelinating pattern or even conduction block, um, despite the pathology being focused on the node. So for example, neurofascin 155 antibodies occur in patients who may have combined central and peripheral demyelination, and therefore can be important in distinguishing autoimmune from perhaps genetic causes. They may have other unusual features which may not initially cause the clinician to think about CIDP, such as cerebellar tremor and prominent distal weakness. And so the detection of the antibodies really allows one to make a confident diagnosis that this is an autoimmune disorder. Similarly, contactin-1 antibodies are associated with early axonal loss and a pure response to IVIG, which again might not initially raise the, the, the thought of CIDP. And in the neurofascin-14186 um, complex antibodies, which have been recently described, um, are found 
in patients who have an acute or indeed subacute onset of a disease, very severe presentations. Some of these patients end up um, ventilated on ITU and have concurrent other autoimmune disorders. So I think the first thing to say is that these antibodies can really help define a specific disease. The next step really is that they then seem to have implications for the type of therapy which might be most effective. So for example, in, in Neurofastin 155 and contacted one antibody positive patients, there's a poor response to IVIG, often used first line in treatment of CIDP, but the patients may respond well to, to steroids or if not steroids, to rituximab. Furthermore, I think in the Neurofastin 140-186 um, patients, initial presentation can look GBS-like, but again, detection of this antibody suggests that they may be steroid responsive as well as IVIG responsive, and that can again be a useful therapeutic avenue to, to, to take. I think the final, um, not as well defined currently, um, clinical implication is this realization that conduction block may be a sign of an axon in danger, but not irreversibly committed to, to, to axonal degeneration. And so the recognition of, of conduction block might allow us a window of opportunity in which effective therapy might prevent irreversible axonal loss. So it sounds like it's um, helpful in differential diagnosis, um, as well as then potentially tailored individualized um, treatments for the patients. Yeah, I think that would be quite right. I mean, so the worry is that without the antibody, you may not realize that this is an autoimmune disorder. It has a very atypical presentation. The antibody seems to be very specific um, um, uh, and has, yes, as you say, therapeutic implications. Simon, thank you for your time and speaking to me about your work on the podcast today. That's no problem. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you to all who tune in each month, and we hope you've enjoyed the conversations with all of our JNMP authors, including Dr. Simon Rinaldi um, from the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford. As always, you can download the papers discussed in any of the podcasts free from jnmp.bmj.com. The JNMP podcast archive is always available for listening on any good podcasting app.